This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to textile consultant Sauna Baker about what's going on in the world of fabric. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including out-of-control construction costs, some big retail moves, and a viral TikTok mocking celebrities and their pedigreed wood furniture. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Home's executive editor, Fred Nicholas. Hi, Fred. Hey, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing post 4th of July? I'm doing good. I had a nice little trip to the the rural part of New Jersey, which does exist despite uh, popular <laughs> opinion. But it looks like you had a little trip to what appeared to be a wallpaper museum, if Instagram stories is to be believed. <laughs> what was that all about? I'm sure our listeners are, would love to hear about that one. Well, one of the things I love to do when I return to Gloucester, Massachusetts, one of the places I used to live during the financial crisis, is visit the historic home named Beauport, which is the the home of of Mr. Sleeper, later the later the McCann Woolworth family, uh, but uh, but Mr. Sleeper was not sleeping when it came to spending money on hand painted wallpaper and vast collections of objects for his home, including some beautiful hundred year old plus Zubair hand painted wallpaper and some beautiful hand painted Chinese wallpapers, and it's a it's a really fun historic home to go and visit. And as I think I mentioned in Instagram stories, I would have loved to have interviewed him for the Business of Home podcast. <laughs> yes, he was just yeah. seemed like a wildly eccentric and fun character. Yeah, maybe he could have explained the clever financial maneuver of mortgaging his house four times to buy <laughs> Zubair wallpaper, which apparently he did. But yes, he he knew how to he knew how to burn through money. That's probably what kept him warm uh, during the winter time in Gloucester was <laughs> yeah. uh, all that money he burned through. All right, we've got to jump into the news, but first. A word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Forehands, a leading source of design inspiration for interior designers, architects, retailers, and more. Forehands will introduce over 350 new styles this summer for every room in the home. See their new collection plus top-selling pieces at their Las Vegas Summer Market showroom from July 29th through August 3rd. Follow them on Instagram at Forehands Furniture for daily inspiration, or visit forehands.com slash BOH to become a trade customer. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home, and I'm so glad you're here. Our team works tirelessly to bring you the industry news you need to know. We're also talking about what it feels like to run a design firm. And you can find those conversations on my podcast, Trade Tales, which features heart-to-hearts with designers getting real about the challenges of creative entrepreneurship. The show is proof that there's no one right way to grow your business. Some weeks, the focus is on improving systems and processes. Others, it's about how sometimes getting out of your own way is what it truly takes to spring ahead. No matter the topic, we're taking a close look at how to build a better design business. And I hope you'll join us. Tune in to Trade Tales every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
Okay, we're back, and we're going to start off with Warren's prediction coming true. Those of you who listened to last week's show know that I spoke to our retail editor, Warren Schulberg, about Overstock's acquisition of Bed Bath & Beyond's intellectual property, which they bought for about $21 million. And Warren speculated that they might want to turn the company into Bed Bath & Beyond, <laughs> and surely enough, that's what they've decided to do. What do you think, Fred? Good plan? Yes. I love Warren Stradamus. We got a <laughs> got a first successful prediction on the Thursday show, which I loved. Yeah. This was definitely surprising because it's it's rare. I was trying to think of another example of a company that buys another company and then takes on their name, especially one like Bed Bath & Beyond, which has been through so much drama in recent history. But reading quotes from the, the CEO of Overstock, it seems like they've just always hated the name Overstock.com. It seems like a, for the past 20 years, they've been trying to get rid of it. Well, as, as Warren and I discussed in the interview, it is a very pigeonholing name. And it yeah. does represent something that they used to be a long time ago when yeah. that's why they had these clearance sale prices on buying all of this Overstock. But as you say, I think the CEO has found that name to be an albatross. I'm not sure that Bed Bath & Beyond <laughs> is going to be any easier for him to, to navigate. A lot of history there, but it, it, it seems like already the market is responding very favorably. I, I think shares of Overstock have jumped about 50% since they started talking about buying Bed Bath & Beyond. So uh, the market's the market's happy to say goodbye to that name. And if you go to if you go to Bed Bath & Beyond Canada, you can you can already see the name change taking effect. So it won't be long before it comes here in the US. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's like because we follow the business so closely, I think we're so aware of the troubles that Bed Bath & Beyond has been having. But I'm guessing the average consumer is just like, what? Oh, okay. All right. It's a website now. Got it. Like, I don't I don't think this is something that the average person is following super closely. And having that name recognition is just super powerful. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I was just reading an article about like why Hollywood likes to make movies around existing properties like for example, Barbie, which I'm sure we'll be talking about endlessly uh, on the show <laughs> as, Barbie, as Barbie core <laughs> takes over the world. But it's just if you have something that people know, if you have a name that people know, that's worth a lot. I guess twenty one point five million dollars uh, to be precise. Well, truthfully, to your point, I think obviously in retrospect, worth a lot more. And so I, I wonder how many brands are kicking themselves that they didn't pay more attention to looking to make this acquisition. And I think Overstock is looking pretty smart for tiptoeing away for just $21 million. Do you think the we podcast should have put together a bid? Just business <laughs> bed, bath and beyond leads right to our uh, Apple podcast page and we get some new subscribers out of it. Well, um, it's, it's a regret that Warren and I share. Honestly, I don't know why we didn't all pitch in. We I feel like we could have. 21 million. Come on. We could have come up with that. This kind of reminds me just really quickly of, of what happened with Interior Define. I'm sure some of our listeners will remember the company went through this big struggle and then it was sort of bought in this complicated acquisition by Havenly towards the end of last year. And we had Havenly's CEO, Lee Mayer, on the pod and she was talking about maybe I want to change the name Interior Define because the brand recognition is so bad. So many scandalous stories, so many negative reviews. But I think like ultimately that scandal kind of fades away and what sticks in people's mind is like, oh, yeah, don't they make nice sofas? So, you know, it, it's genuinely hard to taint a name. I mean, Enron has 
proven that it's possible and you know there's there's companies that do just go away but i think the power of a brand is is very powerful is what we can take away from this staying with the world of retail we've got a couple of other retail stories to talk about fred sure so uh last month i got to go to uh england to see rh's 17th century manor and this month <laughs> our editor caroline burke got to go to suburban pennsylvania to check out uh sorry caroline if you're listening oh, to this caroline um, that hurts that she hurts the way you set that up, right? She, she, I apologize. <laughs> she got to go uh, check out uh, the, a new location from this brand called Terrain, which is actually very popular in Pennsylvania. I wasn't quite as aware of it, but it's a Anthropology's home and garden brand. And they have this massive location that they're building up on the campus of an agricultural university that's got among a restaurant and a cafe and a big store. They've also got a pick your own fruit orchard on the location of, of the store, which is kind of incredible. And Caroline checked it out and wrote a great story uh, about it for us. But then meanwhile, Wayfair is finally after, what, 25 years in business, <laughs> opening up its first ever real store. And there was a lot of news about that and how they want to have a restaurant in it. So it just seems like, you know, it's it's go big or go home for for brands that are that are going heavy on retail. What was your take on these two little pieces of news? Well, I, so I still have no idea what Wayfair's restaurant, quote unquote, is going to be like. And I, and I so five guys. And it's it's hard for me to imagine what the brand extension looks like for for Wayfair as a as a hospitality site. But I I think terrain is actually really brilliant. And I, I've been to the one in, in Westport. It's beautifully executed. I think this one in Delaware sounds and, and looks like it's amazing. I love this kind of brand extension. I think this is how stores, to our earlier point about building a brand name, building brand equity, I, I think getting people into your store, experiencing your fresh vegetables or yes. your or yeah. your wonderful cuisine, I, I just think is a great way to 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 win people over. And it's a reminder that during COVID, we thought, oh, we're going to have to work so much harder when we come out of COVID to get people back into stores, to get people to appear again. Clearly, both of these brands are looking very seriously at that. How do you think this plays into the design trade? Because I feel like it's just a perennial complaint that design centers just don't offer a great shopping experience. Um, you know, I, I can't count how many times you've uh, you've complained about the <laughs> restaurant and the D and D building. Do you think that you know this ethos starts trickling down over to the trade, and you start to see this kind of stuff pop up in in design centers, or is this just purely a retail thing, and that's the only area where it makes sense? Well, I think. I think retail stores have a lot more freedom mm -hmm. and they they can make great big investments. They don't have to please a whole series of tenants. They don't have to go through that kind of a committee if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I I I think you can just you can just be a lot more nimble and I think you can you can take much bigger chances. So I, I don't know if I see design centers, not that not the design centers don't have restaurants. Of course, many of them do. I get it. Although, P.S. The D and D building still doesn't. <laughs> oh, there's my dig right yeah. there. Um, but 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 nothing about the D and D building says that anyone is trying to think about what's going to make this a wonderful experience. So I think that's that's an anomaly. I think other people are trying to think of it. It's 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 a lot easier to do with a retail brand. And again, I think when well executed, it can be a, a brilliant strategy. And listen, knock RH all you want, but a lot of people go there just for the restaurants. So 
it's worked from that perspective. No, totally. I mean, I, I'm not holding my breath for like a pick your own fruit orchard on the roof of the D&D or, or at ADAC anytime <laughs> soon. I, that That's not coming. But I do think there will be pressure on trade sources to sort of up the experience, make the experience of shopping more pleasant. Well, I also think that rarely have I spoken to a designer who doesn't secretly long to have a retail store. <laughs> and yes, so yeah. I also, right? And and I think, yeah. and, and just, just speaking to several designers recently who did open stores, whether during COVID or, or fairly recently. Uh, I, so I, I think few people get as excited about great retail experiences as designers. So I think designers love this sort of thing. I think it's, I think it's more information for them to see what others are doing and what's working and, and what isn't. And, uh, and I think they love I- experiencing that as, as much as, as much as anybody else. I was speaking to Ellie Coleman just recently. She's, she's still mourning the loss of Barney's, uh, that, that <laughs> great retailer. Yeah, of course. Uh, a, a hole in her, in her heart and right. And, and, and many people still, still raise that. So no, uh, no bigger fans of a great retail experience than, than designers. Agreed. Moving on, we're going to talk about inflation and building costs and a feature you wrote for the site this week, Fred. Sure. Well, as I'm sure you'll remember, uh, last month there was some sort of cautious muted cheering about the fact that inflation had dropped from a high of, I think it was 9% down to to 4% uh, in mid-June. And it seems like the next number that comes out is also going to be, you know, headed in the, you know, quote unquote, the right direction. Uh, But at the same time, I was talking to designers every day and they were saying, my contractor bids are going up. They're going up. They keep going up. Uh, <laughs> I, I get a loose bid, and then six months later, it's like 20% higher. So I went looking for why that is and, and what designers can expect uh, going forward. So you saw a lot of good news coming out about inflation, and you said, wait a sec. Let me let me see if I can find some bad news. Let me see if I can, <laughs> let me see if I can find some numbers going the other direction. And you found it. <laughs> Well, that is my job, yes. Well, I know, and and you do it so well. And what I'm fascinated about with this story, Fred, and we're going to talk about some of the different factors behind these these rising prices, this is showing up in a lot of different areas in designers' world and in the home world. And a big part of this, as we know, is the labor shortage, right? So while lumber prices have come down, labor prices, mm, not so much. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because you talk to contractors and I think I came in with this sort of ignorance, too, is that, you know, you think of the uh, a project as largely being taken up by materials, right? It's like, oh, if we get a different kind of tile for the backsplash, that'll cut the project costs in half. And what so many contractors, you know, explained to me and reminded me is that so much of the, the cost of a project is is labor. You know, you've, you've got a, a skilled carpenter who's $45 an hour. You add on insurance and benefits, it's more like $95 an hour. And soon it's like $1,000 a day to have this guy on the job site. And that adds up really, really fast. Um, and what's going into making those costs go up even more is sort of two things. One is consumer inflation, right? Like everybody's gas was going up. Everybody's groceries were going up. The rent was going up. If they had a variable rate mortgage, that was going up. And so every employee of every contractor was like, hey, if you don't give me a 10% raise, you're giving me a pay cut. So contractors across the country have been having to give all their employees raises, which obviously pushes up their own costs. The other part is there there is this crazy labor shortage. It was you know, There was some construction organization that measures the labor shortfall. And it's something like, even if the industry added half a million people, they would still be operating at less than optimal for the industry. 
there's this huge lack of people going into skilled trades and that just creates so much pressure on contractors to keep their best people otherwise they can go to another firm or they can start their own firm they can even move across the country make more money and have a better standard of living so both of those factors are driving up uh, prices for contractors absolutely and the the point i was making earlier about how this is so similar to many other areas in the home world so this is the very problem we were talking about not too long ago with the custom upholstery business and furniture making in general. The the age of the average worker is so high and they're going to continue to retire and not be able to work. And the, the number of young people coming up to replace them is just 20 or 30 percent of that workforce. So it, it, it just continues to be this huge shortfall. And that is particularly true in much of the home construction industry where unfortunately the the best workers are in their 50s and they're they're not going to be they're not going to be working for too much longer and as you pointed out in the article too a lot of these people much like designers keep telling us that oh all of our best people keep leaving sure the best plumbers they they leave too and ps who knew they could leave and start a $200,000 a year job why yes. why am i not working on my plumbing skills i yet? know that was my main takeaway from this article was that i <laughs> need to drop the podcast microphone and go pick up a wrench and get a plumbing degree exactly there was a contractor in sacramento who was saying like you know my best plumbers can just walk off the job start their own firm with minimal paperwork and make $200,000 a year without too much of a problem and it's a real challenge for contractors and it pushes costs up. And because it's this labor shortage that will take a long time to turn itself around, these price hikes are just going to keep going. So I don't think we're going to get any relief on this uh, issue in, in the immediate future. And of course, the problem for designers, right, is that, you know, the more of a budget that gets sucked up in construction costs, the less can go to fabric and furnishings, which is where they make their margin. So it's sort of this perennial source of tension between designers and contractors, the fact that these costs keep going up. No, I completely agree. And, and, and as you say, this problem is not going away anytime soon. You listen to some of the earnings calls of some of the big home builders, they tell you the exact same thing. This is this is a major problem. And unfortunately, in the US, it is a structural problem that is going to be playing out over the next decade. A lot of people talk about uh, we need to make some changes to our immigration laws in order to make it easier for some, some people to come in. You talk to a lot of builders, they say the same thing. They're, a lot of their good people can't stay for as long as they'd like or some other issues around all of that so we've, we've got some we've got some big issues to to fix and unfortunately to your point about designers I, I, I don't see this side of cost easing up for them anytime soon yeah I know it's difficult I mean I think like the lesson from this is just develop a good relationship with contractors because the more you can talk about it the more likely it is that you'll both walk away from the job making a profit I mean some designers basically just try and get clients to commit to like a minimum spend at the very beginning so that their margin can't get squeezed out but then of course you know you say that and then in the middle of the project, you know, something comes up, you need a new supporting wall, you're not likely going to say no to that. So it uh, it can get sticky. And I think basically the, you know, the, the better relationship you can have with your contractor, the, the more likely you'll walk away from the project feeling good about it. And don't even show those clients the option of the copper gutters, right? I mean, of course. <laughs> that was, yes, that was, uh, that was, yes, yeah, Stephanie Sabi, a great Nashville designer, was talking about how one of her clients had copper gutters, which are very expensive, it must be said, something like five or six times more expensive than, yes. than uh, the standard option. And at the end of the project, the client didn't have enough of a budget for pillows. And she was, you can have copper gutters, but we can't have pillows. Get out of town. It's a very familiar refrain, even though designers are, you know, they like contractors and they have good relationships and they understand these 
these things. It's just, it creates a, a squeeze at the end of a project that really unfortunately squeezes designers, which is a bummer. No, no, to, to, to be sure. Moving on to a slightly <laughs> lighter topic and hopefully a, a more fun one, we wanted to talk about a new viral TikTok that parodies celebrities and their pedigreed wood. Fred? <laughs> well, I could explain it to you, but why don't I just play it for you? Let's take a listen to this. This was made out of the wood from Winston Churchill's yacht. I'm not lying. This is a teak bathtub. It's amazing. It's made by Scottish barrel makers. I bought this in New York, this mm -hmm. bathroom door, and it was in Jackie Onassis's building. These doors are actually from Nepal, which is really cool. The moment that I knew that this was the place that we would raise our kids is was this tree. This 300-year-old oak tree. It's a sewing box, and it was owned by the one and only Anne Margaret. I love the wood that goes around. The most expensive wood you'll ever see. My favorite part of this room is, is really the wood. <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard a BOH podcast alum in there. Jeremiah Jeremiah Brand was talking about a tree in him, him and Nate Burkus's yard. Um, yeah, that, so that was a, a viral TikTok that made the rounds, basically compiling and, and chopping up clips from Architectural Digest's Open Door series, where celebrities sort of show viewers through their home. And it, it was compiling all these examples of, I don't even know what to call it, pedigreed wood is what I what I came up with, like humble brag wood. I'm not sure what the, <laughs> the right term is. Uh, I guess first to get things rolling, Dennis, do you have any... Uh, do you have like uh, Eisenhower's uh, floors in your kitchen? Do you have any pedigreed wood in the house? Sadly, my home is devoid of pedigreed <laughs> wood, and I and I feel I feel the, the absence. I feel I feel a hole in my in my soul. Never mind my my home. So I I want to I want to jump on that. I I want Anne Margaret's wooden yes. sewing box. Yes, Elton John's bread box. <laughs> yeah. What 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 do you think TikTok is is saying to us with this with this messaging though, Fred? <sighs> I don't know if they're making fun of historical wood. I have to I have to beg to differ. I love that stuff. I think it's really great and it's it's sustainable. I mean, you're using this wood for hundreds of years literally in some of these cases. So I think I think uh wood with history is very cool and a very legit uh, part of the design industry. I'm sure you've encountered it before. Um, I don't know. I think this is just a funny example of TikTok latching onto a little thing from the design world. And maybe they're making fun of it. Maybe they're celebrating it. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But certainly a lot of designers that I know shared this piece. So I thought it'd be fun to, to play it, play it for those who haven't heard. Well, I think this falls into the category of all press is good press. Right, I, right. I think the more we have conversations about design happening on TikTok, the better. I think this is getting design out to the world. So mocking or not, I I say I'm all for it. And I'm going to look up uh, Hemingway's wide plank flooring once this uh, session is over. It's, uh, <laughs> it's really going to pull my room together. I love this one. Well, I, I love your, your sustainability tie in there in the yes. end, Fred. So I think that's a great that's a great message to take away from this. Yes. Pedigreed wood equals sustainability. <laughs> take that. Yes. All right, that's it for the news, but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com, including a roundup of all the comings and goings in the industry. We're gonna to get to my interview with Sauna Baker in a minute, but first, a quick break. Forehand's newest collection of home furnishings and decor debuts this month, and will include over 350 new pieces, inspired by everything from fluid forms to structural lines. Plus, don't miss their new leather upholstery, 
sustainably tanned using eucalyptus leaves. To join their trade program and shop over 6,000 styles, visit forehands.com BOH. There's never an order minimum, and you'll enjoy even bigger discounts the more you spend. That's F-O-U-R-H-A-N-D-S dot com slash B-O-H. Hi, it's Caitlin again. Are you ready to build a better design business? Join hundreds of design professionals in Business of Homes membership community, BOH Insider, to access exclusive reporting and industry analysis that will keep you competitive and connected as you grow your firm. Membership includes complimentary access to weekly educational workshops with industry experts, a subscription to BOH Magazine, and a directory of skilled trades across the country. Insiders also get discounts on BOH's industry-leading job board, which is especially helpful when you're ready to expand your team. And later this year, insiders will begin to receive exclusive invitations to private field trips to unique destinations that unlock creativity and community. Learn more and join us today at businessofhome.com slash BOH Insider. My guest today is Sana Baker, the editor-in-chief of The Textile Eye. Sana, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dennis. I am delighted to get to speak with you. I've enjoyed our conversations in the past and was eager to share with our audience exactly what the textile eye is all about and also some of the other work you might do behind the scenes in the fabric industry. So tell us. So the textile eye is a quarterly trend and show report that focuses on high-end home textiles around the world. And I think, you know, for a lot of American designers, you spend a lot of, and probably all over the world, you spend a lot of time in your office behind your computer you know, maybe you're looking at social media, you're clicking away on spreadsheets, you're designing on CAD or Illustrator or Photoshop, and you don't necessarily have that influx of inspiration that comes from being around great work. So mm. to me, I just notice that when I am in the presence of great work, whether it's art or design, I really get lit up. And those moments of inspiration, that's what I want to imbue into the pages of the textile eye for people that don't necessarily get to go to shows. Or even if you do go to shows, you know, this report that we're discussing today is Salone. You know, that mm. was already... A month ago, six weeks ago, and in our minds, it feels like ancient history, but those influences are going to be coming. And so to have a curated way that you can look back at the shows yourself or share it with your staff or share it with your clients and then see that archive kind of building over time, I think it's very valuable. Well, so I wonder sort of top line what you think some of the big takeaways were from Milan. It was almost a dichotomy of approaches. On one hand, there were a lot of designers who were exploring almost ugly things. things <laughs> well, that, you talked about urban decay. Urban and, decay, uh, yes. Right? <laughs> the ravages of time. Um, yeah. There's one theme that we call decayed patina that really shows, you know, paint being scraped from a wall or wallpaper coming down. And this isn't like in a charming antiqued way all the time. <laughs> so that sort of decay as inspiration was something that I noticed a lot of. There was another theme that I'm calling surreal cellular mm. that looks like cells, like 
as though these products have grown on their own from organic material as opposed to having been designed and manufactured. So they can these themes can be pretty challenging when you really see the depths of which yes. designers will go to. And I don't know that a lot of these things are going to translate perfectly into the American market, but I do think that there is um, an interest in taking the sort of mess of the world around us and turning it into inspiration and figuring out how to um, make sense of things through art and through design. Mm. Interesting. And and are these themes are they are they a jumping off point to then present you with with, with a, a a series of of works and and is it is it a about showing you texture, color? Tell me how they use these these ideas behind them. Well, it's a good question. I think for me, um, I might say, oh, look, a lot of people are dealing with luminosity while I'm at the show. But it isn't until later that I think, oh, they're dealing with luminosity and also ombre color and also beautiful workmanship. And then that mm-hmm kind of comes together in my mind as a theme. So Shades of Gradient is the one that I'm explaining now where it's these beautiful glass, luminous, even textiles that give the impression of light streaming through them. And it's that that theme is sort of the opposite theme. It's still a very modern theme, but it's kind of the opposite of these decayed and sort of pretty ugly or sexy ugly kind of thing. <laughs> themes um, and it really they are uplifting they're things that you you have an in-breath when you see them and then of course there's the themes that are more expected um, there's always going to be a huge uh, traditional and classicist kind of thing happening um, but people are playing around with it a lot and reinventing um, and so for me one of the big themes that I saw was called classical reinvention and it's kind of taking these very traditional ideas, but then infusing them with something cheeky or something fresh. So like the Vanini glassmakers were doing these funny mirrors that looked like human faces, almost like little caricatures, (laughs) Um, or really taking things and, and doing something unexpected with a very traditional technique. So are we are we right in thinking and and tell me how this happens that what you just saw in Milan is going to show up for American designers in a meaningful way in in what 6 months a year or is it just trickle into their world how does it how does that whole cycle process really work you might see one or two ideas being presented by an interior designer in a home for somebody who's very cutting edge in a year. But in terms of the themes actually influencing American design, hmm. it's going to be two years, four years, five years. And things move slowly. I mean, one of the things that we talk about is white boucle, right? (laughs) When something like ivory boucle, which was missing from the market for decades, and all of a sudden it came in and it looked very fresh, how long ago was that? Years. And so then it builds up and it builds up. And then you think, oh my gosh, how can there possibly be any more? And then you go to an influential show and everything is still covered in white boucle. So it takes a minute. Um, and I think yeah. especially with some of the more challenging themes, they're never going to be a huge influence here. But one theme that I'm seeing a lot is um, 
there's these three themes that are sort of organic. And one of them is called Rock Garden. And another one is Natural Tendencies. And a third one is Soft Spots. So these three themes all have more natural colorations, more natural influences. And especially with natural tendencies, it's almost like a simulacrum of nature. So a floral design is always going to be in. But what kind of floral design is it? Um, What I've been seeing over the last few seasons is um, an interest in the imperfections of nature. Hmm. So it's not a stylized, perfected flower. It's a funky leaf with a hole in it or a brown edge or designs that really do show like a copy of a replica of nature in all of its imperfection. There's also uh, something that I'm noticing is designers are really grappling with um, extinction and with the idea of mutations and things that maybe aren't so beautiful, but they use their art and their design as a way to sort of process what they're seeing around them in terms of changes in natural uh, habitat and in terms of global warming. And that can come through in interesting ways in the product. Um, And I do think that the perfect stylized floral, there will always be a place for that, but we will start to see these designs that are a bit more funky and have a little bit more um, edginess to them. And that I think is is not gonna take too long, maybe, you know, 18 months or a year. What are they trying to tell us? What's what's the grim message to be taken from all of this? I, I, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I think that what you see is companies that maybe have deep pockets and are Mm. willing to give a platform to artists and designers who are willing to be experimental and willing to put something out that's not based on an analysis of what was sold last year and what the market maybe wants, but what they are actually inspired by and what they're actually grappling with. So it becomes a more artistic approach. And I personally find that very interesting. <laughs> well, so you, you spoke earlier about how, how relatively slow moving the home furnishings industry is. And I know that that many in Milan and, and in Italy at large think the American market is a little behind the times maybe maybe quite a bit behind the times in in their mind and and that we that we are slow to to adopt some some new ideas and and, and new inspirations is that your sense as as well in a word i would say yes um, <laughs> i think the market in general moves slowly hmm. um I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, everyone in Europe all is cutting edge and so forth. I mean, there's plenty of beige sofas in Europe too. Um, <laughs> but they, they do like to tease us about our, our proclivities for beiges and neutrals. And actually, it was very interesting talking about color. Um, the color section, the color guide is another section of the report that we do. And this is the first time in about five years that I don't have a full palette of neutrals. Mm. I just, I saw black and white and I saw some wonderful, rich sort of mid-tone chocolatey browns, but I did not see enough neutral to create a neutral palette. And this was maybe the most, (laughs) the biggest takeaway. And in terms of the influence of European design on 
on American design that we have been talking about color. We have been talking about pattern. Um, we joke about it with some of my clients. We joke about how you've got to have the colors to sell the neutrals and you have to have the patterns to sell the planes. So there are ways in which American companies can embrace um, real creative approaches, fabulous color palettes, really different things. But mm. when the client comes in, it may be that taupe, Boucle that they're going to go for in the end. <laughs> There's something about color which is a little scary to Americans sometimes. And I think people in the rest of the world, not even just Europe, don't really have that issue. To most other people, beige is another color. You know, it's not different right. in some manner. This one's acceptable and these ones aren't. Um, yeah. Or like the use of high chroma and low chroma colors together can be so interesting. And it's something that we are a bit challenged on i think it's like if it's a bright it's a bright and you're all out bright and then you've <laughs> got a bright colors and you're into bright colors and that's your thing and that's it can be beautiful but you can also do things with a bit more nuance and i i like that now interestingly just shortly before milan came proposed or proposte however we want to pronounce it and tell listeners what that show is and, and the different dynamic that's going on there. It's a wonderful show. It could not be more different. Salone is gigantic. The show itself out at Row, I think it had 2,000 exhibitors. Wow. And Proposte is a very tiny show of only mills and textile producing companies that show inside the fair. And it really is a place where the big textile firms, big and small alike, go to buy their fabrics. So um, a lot of these mills work with the large fabric companies to create special designs. So a lot of fabric, we call them fabric editors, um, mm. do huge amount of development work where they're coming, they're bringing artwork, they might be bringing antique textiles from their, um, from their archives. And so some mills will show full collections where they have gone and done their own trend research. They have big staffs of designers. They have concepts. They have color boards. And they're leading the way in terms of what is the new wonderful thing. One of the big things that they showed a lot of was different types of fiber. So it would be bamboo came a few years ago, you know, like... Mm. 15. And then this time I was seeing agave, rose petals, orange peel. Fabrics that were made from these materials? Yes. Yeah, so these are, you know, these are experimental things that mm. they might be showing. They say, oh, we've got, you know, five kilos of, of this orange peel yarn in. What do you think? We're seeing more and more recycled materials. That's becoming really a big deal. Right. So that's, and that's part of what I want to better understand from you because how nice that it, sounds so sustainably minded it's made from orange peels but how did we take those orange peels and turn them into a fiber that we can actually right use for a textile wait we had to put them through what kind of machine and that produced what on the other end and that's so often where we, we don't talk about it. We just hold up the orange peels and say, how could that be anything but sustainable? But really, once you better understand the process, you, you discover there's, there's lots of things that happen along the, the way. 
yeah, understanding all of the bits and pieces that are put together are really important. I have been following very carefully um, sustainability in terms of biodegradable polyesters, which we've seen a lot coming on the market. And I just read an article that was saying, hey, this stuff does not biodegrade the way that they say it should. Now, I don't know if that's going to be true across the board, but um, if we could figure out how to get polyester to biodegrade, that that would be fabulous. It seems a little bit like the Wild West right now with sustainability, right? I agree with you. I really do. I think there are so many things. I mean, we're just understanding now the impact of the fire retardant chemicals on the water table and so forth. So um, it's also funny because as we talk about these things that are very high tech and very head scratchy, you also have the option of buying organic cotton or buying linen or buying hemp, which are wonderful and sustainable and you don't need to do a lot of scientific testing to see if linen is good for the planet or not. One exciting thing on the natural fibers that's happening is outdoor furniture or outdoor textiles, excuse me, that are made of hemp and seem to do pretty well outside. I mean, if you think about hmm. Viking sails and um, ropes that have a very good lifespan and live outside for many decades, those things are all made of natural fibers too, hemp and linens. So those could make some inroads, at least with the environmentally conscious here in the States. So digital printing was a hot button issue for a while. Lots of skeptics, lots of people saying, oh, it'll, it'll never be good enough. Has it suddenly gotten good enough? What's what's the sense? It's good enough. Um, <laughs> it 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 still has some limitations, um, hmm. but even some of those are being overcome. One of the main limitations uh, of digital printing is that you have to print a dark color on a lighter ground. There's hmm. no way to print a metallic or a white ink on top of a darker ground, and they seem to be figuring out some technologies to do that. So that's going to be very interesting because that's one of the ways in which screen printing, and that could be hand screened or rotary or even um, hand blocking. Hand blocking. And, and the, thank you. Even yeah. hand blocking can, can do that really effectively. But yeah, digital printing is revolutionizing the ombre looks that we're seeing, that these really large scale gradients, um, and also the room scale murals. I had such a marvelous time listening to your interview with with uh, Fromental. Oh. And you know, what can be done by a hand painter is absolutely the most spectacular thing. The next most spectacular thing is being <laughs> able to address, you know, a large scale wall and digital printing allows you to do that. And so two things from that conversation. One, how how great that he's able to find ways to sort of knock himself off through digital printing, right? And to be able to offer a slightly different product, again, with, with certain limitations. Um, but also, I found both amusing and, and also just hit home so much this notion that, well, ju just because we suddenly now can do all of these different things with digital printing do we necessarily want to is the market crying out for all of all of this and uh, I, I think that's that's always such an important thing to keep in mind 
right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I mean, one of the approaches that I take with the textile eye is that I really do like to show things that are a little bit different. They say, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Who would ever do this? But the inspiration can come from saying, oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. However, if we took this piece of it or we took this approach or we changed our thinking about scale, what could that enable us to give to our customers? And um, as, as you know, as Tim was saying, sometimes things take a while to be accepted. Um, you know, if we had the perfect chair and the perfect sofa and the perfect textile, it would just exist. And none of, all of us would be out of a job, you know. So there is yeah. this there is this drive towards using interior design products as uh, creative fodder and to create beautiful environments that are different and that are personal. And so, what is beautiful to one person might be ugly to the next. What's boring to one person might be beautiful, restrained elegance to the next. And so for me, I actually find that reality incredibly inspiring. So within the technology conversation, was anyone in, in Italy talking about AI? Were people talking about uh, all these different sites that are creating images? And I mean, is that is that showing up meaningfully for people yet or just the nervousness around all of it mostly? There was some discussion. There was an interesting uh, display by Fila, mm -hmm. uh, the athletic company, uh, sure. where they had done an experiment with AI to look at their logos over the years and create some sort of immersive experience. Um, that was one that sort of stuck out as interesting to me. Um, it did feel a little bit more in the there was more buzz about it than there was mm. anything that really made me think, oh, okay, this is how it's going to play out in our industry, or this is how it's going to play out in textiles. We talked on the show about uh, an AI-powered robot that was designing ceramics and some other things. And I, I fear, and I just want to get you ready for this, son, I fear that a story is coming soon from us about AI-powered uh, fabric uh, design and I, I don't know. Buckle, buckle up. Buckle because... up. I will. But this is why this is why I look to business of home to keep me in the know, Dennis. You guys can do the hard work well. and and tell me about AI, and then I'll go go see what I can learn. <laughs> exactly. And meanwhile, you'll move try to move us back to natural fibers and materials and uh, and ways of of milling fabrics that ha that have gone away. Sadly, I was I was recently taking a tour at the Kravit archive, the fabulous Scott Kravit taking me taking me through and showing me some fabrics that he said Dennis Mills can't even make this fabric anymore. Oh, it's terrible. Heartbreaking. You take a sample to a mill now and you say, "Oh, can you make this?" and they say, "No, we can't make that. That's too hard." You know, it's too painstaking to do that. And you say, but I have a client that wants to buy it. And then you, they say, oh, well, if we were to make that and sell it, we couldn't sell it for enough money. Right. So now you understand why the mill that was making that is no longer in business. And, you know, people don't understand that the margins that most mills work on are pretty small. So it can be a tough business for them. Do we mark up fabric too much in the country? I would say probably. I mean, I think it would be nice if fabrics could be sold for less money. That would be great. But it's also incredibly expensive to be a, a 
to have a textile collection. I mean, it, it takes a lot of money. The sampling is really important, uh, expensive. The marketing is really expensive as you know, you've, you've done deep dives into this stuff, but when you really think about one yard of fabric and how many kilos of linen are in that yard, the markups can be pretty impressive. No, absolutely. And, and so many of the fabric houses have, and, and again, I get it, but when you really break it down, and some of our guests in the past have really broken it down, where those markups happen and, and, and why, and then you think of a designer marking it up even more and, right, in some cases, doubling the price or tripling the price, whatever happens sometimes. It just, it just seems like nobody even has a real understanding of the reality of what the actual cost is versus what might be out there in the in the market. And I just wonder if it's if that's part of what sometimes is holding the fabric industry back in some ways. It it is interesting. One of the things that that I find curious is how few manufacturers are willing to go straight to the general public. Some of them are. Some do have their own textile mill and also, you know, a showroom or a collection that they market either to interior designers or to the general public. And what that means is that that line or that collection is going to be only Scottish wool. You know, you don't Mm. have the one-stop shop that you do of going to a large uh, company and you don't necessarily have the design intent of putting together these beautiful collections and, um, so forth, but you do you do sometimes have access to very high quality things at a low price because you're buying straight from the manufacturer. No, no, it's it, it's interesting because I I know that I mean to to the point of the mills coming to you directly. You know, so many so many people seem to have this fear that that's what Material Bank wants to do. They want to gather all this data around the best sellers of all these different materials, right? And they know what people are sampling. and And I've asked Adam Sando about this very directly, you know, and he says, "Of course not. These are my customers." But you you can't shake that fear from a lot of people's heads that this is what this data collector really wants to to do in the same way that Amazon did with so many of the best selling products it just developed its own private label for it and i and i get it but i don't yeah, know yeah yeah we don't want that we don't want that <laughs> and i i do think i mean i i've heard you speak before about like the glut of textile lines that are out there and all these new lines that are coming on and and the thing that the thing that I do like to see is the individual expression that comes through in some of those yes. collections. And it's a crowded marketplace for sure. Um, but when you see a, a company or a brand that really has a point of view, it just makes it all worthwhile. So when you have that point of view, it's pretty hard to copy that. You can copy it once. Hmm. If you're trying to do your own private label and you have an idea, but you don't have a design visionary, you can maybe do it once because you're copying the idea. But what do you do next time? And what do you do next time? And what do you do next time? And I think that that's one of the issues that maybe contributed to like Bed Bath & Beyond's um, demise, that Hmm. they had kind of gone away from using outside brands to using inside brands. And that's the sort of like watered down design that I think doesn't really light anybody up in the end. Yeah, you go there, you buy something from your for your guest room, it's fine. But you know, what are you really buying into? Is there a point of view? Is there a perspective? Are you 
buying organic linen? Are you buying an amazing print from a print designer that has a really unique perspective? Are you buying Italian handmade, you know, hand embroidered gorgeousness? No, you're just buying whatever is easy. And I don't know that that's really going to be the way forward in terms of exciting design for the future. Well, I, listen, I love the way you, that you've tied in one of our one of our top stories. I don't think we want to see the bed, bath, and beyondification happen in the design industry in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and that is such a great message and why we look to Milan and elsewhere for uh, for for leadership and and for inspiration because we we don't want to just be building a business on uh, what's what's selling or or what's the what's the lowest cost product that we can get that we can mark up the most so. absolutely absolutely I couldn't agree more and Dennis lest you think that I am only uh, uh, interested in European design my next report is going to be about American textiles and all the exciting things that are happening in the states so. I'm looking well, forward we'll have to, to have delving you back into that. For that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear because everyone always says, oh, you can't do that in America anymore. But maybe so. Perhaps you can. You'll have to tell us. We'll have to we'll have to read the textile eye. And if you don't already, you should be because it's a it's a really spectacular report that you put out. It's full of inspiration. It's also full of education. And you really learn so much as I do every time that I read it. So I'm I'm thrilled to get to speak with you. And I thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you, Dennis. It's really a pleasure. Okay, we're getting to the end of the show here, but before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred? Sure. Well, a couple weeks ago, I implored every listener to start their own vacation rental Airbnb. <laughs> and then last week, there was this kind of viral story that went around about how Airbnb was going to crash and it had like half the listings it was supposed to have. That was sort of debunked and it was maybe kind of a nothing burger of a story. But it, it has been interesting to see where, you know, we're in the thick of summer. So there's all kinds of data coming around on how Airbnb is doing. And the takeaway to me, at least, seems to be that the middle of the market, you know, the, the Airbnb. Airbnbs that are kind of okay, sort of expensive, but not that nice are the ones that are hurting the most, whereas the ones that are at the luxury, beautifully designed, high end of the market are still doing great. So my advice still holds, get that vacation rental property, but do it to the nines. Don't go half. Don't go half at it. Go go all the way. That's my takeaway. That That's what the feedback suggests. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Anything catch your eye? Good uh, Good point. What What caught my eye actually was one of our comings and goings was, uh, was a big announcement about a friend of BOH, Andres Ortega, or as we know him, Drew. And Drew has been named the, the director of brand management for Target. And uh, those of us that have known Drew for a long time know that this is a, a lifelong dream come true. We're happy for him, and it just shows you hang in there, and eventually that job of your dreams will materialize. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news in the design industry, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lizzie Reisinger and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.